precious Jesus, Heavenly Father, powerful spirit, we come before you as your children, as your, as your boys, as your men. Asking to know you more. We pray for your revelation. Not only the logos, Lord, but also the rima. Your word to go forth within our hearts to change us. We need to be more like you, Jesus. We sing we can imagine what it's be like, Lord, to be before you. To gaze into your eyes, Lord. Help us to walk with that view in our sights. Just like as Peter saw Jesus on the waters of Galilee, Lord. When he had his eyes fixed on Jesus, amazing things happened. May our eyes be fixed upon you. You are the author. You are the perfecter. You are the finisher of our faith. You deserve the glory. And Lord, I want to pray for Erica for complete healing of her spinal surgery. Lord, remove the discomfort she has, Father, of your son Eric for his throat, but also spiritually for him. He's come to seek counsel, Father, that he and his wife may be reconciled on the cross, Lord. For our sister Rose, who's going to have um, further testing tomorrow to check this lesion on her chest, Lord, Father, to make sure that all is clear. Father, we just pray for a miraculous test result that all is nothing, Lord. Father, for Teresa, for her ankle injury, Father, and for this illness, she's sore throat, Father, that others, and so many who've been sick, our pastor, he didn't even ask for prayer for himself when he was mentioning how sick he was earlier, Lord, feeling tired, Lord. There's so many within the body who's been sick who are out, Lord, Father, I just pray for healing, Father. But Father, we're all so, so much of us, we're all spiritually sick and we need you. You are the bomb. You are the only thing that can heal us to make us right. Have your way. You deserve the glory. Amen. So uh, we're going to be going on in First Peter. We spent a lot of time last week kind of doing a long extended introduction, getting a sense of who Peter was, what he was when he was with Jesus, what he was right after when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And now we're looking some 30 years later. When you read in the book of First Peter, we're now 30 years later, somewhere in the early 60s, okay, in Rome. Some say um, during the time of Nero, and he dies shortly after that. And by historical tradition, he was taken and crucified upside down. Uh, most of the early church fathers refer to that. Well, some of them refer to that, that he was crucified upside down um, around the same time that Paul was. Um, during the persecution of Nero. And so this is a tense time that he's talking to and he's addressing um, believers. And last week, Stephen mentioned about um, Paul confronting Peter. Um, this happened 10 to 15 years before and um, when he was basically, Paul was basically saying, I was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. But you read here that, you know, this is 15 years later, and really the church is more unified, it's more one. It's not so much the separation as much. And Peter, who was admonished by Paul, not because he hung around with the Jews, just like Barnabas did, instead of, instead of seeing them all under Christ, now speaks to all as one. So we're going to read First Peter verses 
1, chapter 1, 3 to 5 again, and then move on quickly from that. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, there was a lot, and I mentioned last week, you know, if you want to put something to a scripture memorization, this, even though a long verse is a good one to, or a long three verses is a good one to remember. Um, it just talks about this undefiled hope. This is the hope that we have is with Jesus, okay? And that we're kept through the power of God through faith. Okay, it's all through faith. So we have faith and hope. Okay, and then Peter's later going to talk also about love. So let's move on to first verses six to nine. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls okay and so there's a lot here. And let's start at the beginning. In The word here is in that you greatly rejoice. And the Greek word for that is agaleo. And it's not just, hey, this is good. Okay, let me ask a question. Which of you, you guys have watched sports teams and cheered for one of your sports teams? Okay? And, you know, I'm... I'm as a Canadian, been blessed as a hockey fan to live in Montreal in the 1970s when they won five Stanley Cups and in Edmonton in the 80s when they won five. So I've got to see some victory there. And you know in the tension of a game or a match and you see what happens and then when your team scores, you know, you jump out of your seats and you go, yeah, you're all over the top. I know that sounded loud, but it's intense, okay? You're going wild, you're going crazy. You greatly rejoice okay when you look at sports events and i noticed um C's wearing a uk a uh, doctor friend of mine has seasons tickets to the uk wildcats basketball his mother got them in the early 60s so they've had them now for over 60 years okay these seats that can pass on and he um gets these great seats down there and i've seen some of the games and you know everybody's they call it a sea of blue they're all wearing the blue it's very much looks like the the art blue that David's wearing. And you see the sea of blue, and they're all cheering. And it's a big event. And everybody's, everybody wants to get close to the front. When you go to a sports event, or if you go to a concert, nobody wants to sit in the back. You want to be there right at the front because you want to be near where the action is. You want to be where it's close. And we as the church need to be the same. That passion and intensity to be there right at the front, not at the back. You know, I came to faith in a Southern Baptist church, and, you know, the the term was called, you know, backseat Baptist. They all sit at the back of the church. 
You know, nobody would sit in the front, okay? <laughs> okay, you'd all sit in the back. People have been there for a long time, you know, 40, 50 years going to the church, and all sit in like the back row. Remember Steve Ayers, he's a pastor of Hillview Heights uh, Church, and, you know, he's kind of a, he says he's kind of a, plays a country hick thing, but, you know, he, got his, he has his doctorate. He's actually smarter than he comes across, but he walked with his headset right to the back of the church and turned around and said, okay, now this is the front of the church, okay? But the principle is, if when you have this faith, this kind of rejoicing we have is over the top. It reminds me of that scene in Rocky, if you've seen that movie, where Sylvester Stallone is running up and he reaches the top there in Philadelphia and his arms are raising up and he's just celebrating in that power. Or when you see the match and when you see when he wins and all that's going on, he's yelling out, you know, Adrian, Adrian, okay? And so the idea is there's intensity and there's passion, okay, and that you care. We greatly rejoice. And sometimes in the church, we don't experience that joy to that depth. We have that for secular things, but we don't have that for things that really matter, that really matter. So when you, when you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, looking at the Beatitudes, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, wow. You know, when we had a victory, we just talked about it, when your team wins, it's easy to really go over the top and rejoice. But Jesus is saying here, when you're in the midst of trial, when things are not going your way, I want you to celebrate over the top. You know, we think, okay, I'll have to weather the storm, batten down the hatches. That's not what scripture says. That's not what Jesus says. And we're looking at our circumstances and not looking at our Savior and not looking at the hope we have, at the inheritance that we have in Christ that will not perish, that will not spoil, that will not fade. Okay? And so right here, Jesus is saying, when, they, when you're reviled, when you're persecuted, when you're going through trials, when you're suffering, I want you to not just be, ah, it's good, but like, yeah, God is great. And you go, how can you think God is great when your circumstances are not? Because what? Our hope is in heaven with Jesus. And what? We don't have to be attached to this world. This world seduces us. This world wants to grab hold of us. It says this is all there is. Again and again, every day, we're inundated with messages that says, you know, YOLO, you only live once, right? This is all that there is, okay? Grab all that you can get before you go, right? The one who has the wins gets the most toys wins. That is a lie. It's false. Our hope is in heaven. It's only in Jesus Christ. And that time when the world says that and we're suffering, it's like, oh, yeah, duh. I got to think about Jesus in heaven. Why am I putting my hope here? Why am I resting my satisfaction, my circumstances? Why am I worried about it? Now, I'm not saying there's not suffering. I share with you, you know, I can only imagine was the song that we sang, which was one of two of my wife's favorite songs. She 
sang, I can only imagine, and blessed be the name, you know, Matt Redman's song, and you give and take away, but still my, blessed be the name, you give and take away, but still I choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And um, she's in glory now since 2008. And it was hard going through that because my focus was on the temporal and not on the internal. And we are looking at something from this side, and if you've seen tapestries that are intricately woven, and if you look at the back side of a tapestry or anything, and it looks like threads that are wild all over the place, and, but you look on the other side, and you'll see this beautiful work of production. That's what's going to happen when we go to heaven. We won't see all things now. We cannot. We only see through a glass dimly. Okay? All will be made clear afterwards. If we believe God's good, if we believe that there's nobody better than him, if we know that he promises to work all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then it will be the best scenario for those who love him. It won't be just okay. It will be the best. That's the inheritance that we'll have in Jesus Christ. And so that is what gives us something to rejoice. And it shows up with us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And that word of glad and rejoice is that over-the-top rejoicing. So from now on, when you see that word, glad and rejoice, always the second word is going to be over-the-top. Or exceedingly joy, that means over-the-top. That means just like when you're celebrating when your team scores a point, but much more so. I've seen those Stanley Cups. I've seen the parades, and I don't remember them. I kind of remember a little bit. They don't last but the joy we have in Christ lasts forever. If we can remember that, the joy that we have in Christ lasts forever. Okay? And that is something that we need to abide in and celebrate. And we are that bride that's going to be ready and we will rejoice. So, we've talked about faith test by fire. We've talked about various trials. We've talked about that before when we went through the book of James. And so you get to see James talks about it. Paul has talked about it. We talked about it in Corinthians. And now Peter's talking about it. The message is the same. They're all going through trials. We shall go through trials. That's a promise. Okay? It's a promise we'll go through trials. Why? Because it's in trials that we get to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's in trials that we realize our hope is not in the world. Our hope is in heaven. Okay? It's in trials that others get to see what Christ really means for us. It's easy to be a Christian when everything's going your way, when all things handed to you on a platter. Okay? It's not so easy when things aren't going your way and you hold out that you have faith in Jesus Christ. So when you look at what's happening in, in the persecuted world, what's happening in the 1040 window in the Middle East and in China and now in India and Nigeria where, you know, with the Fulani, there's 55,000 Nigerians who've been killed for their faith in the last decade. Okay, we don't hear about that in the news. We don't hear about that in the news, but Christians are dying right now. Okay, around the world for their faith, but when they walk with Christ and others see that, that's what brings them to it. That's what 
that what got me to consider. When the pastor friend was being persecuted, when I was up in Canada, it's the first time I asked questions. First time my heart was open to something and realized this is not the way the world operates. So we will have various trials, and our faith will be tested by fire, but he says much more precious than gold. And he says gold that perishes. When we look at gold, we don't think gold perishes. And when we talk about heaven, there'll be streets of gold, but the gold of this world will perish. Everything in this world will be burned up and go away. The only thing that will stand is what? The word of God. The only thing that will stand is the word of God. And it's through his word that he created the universe and the world, and it's through his word again that he'll create the new Jerusalem and the new earth. Through what he speaks in his word that lasts forever. And so, what does it do? What does this word do, right? Okay? That your genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. So what is that faith that's tested by fire? It's a faith that's a sincere faith when it's tested by fire. We don't really know what you believe until things are going your way. Days of turmoil, are you going to become better or bitter? When things are, are you going to go away from the Lord? Or are you going to choose to cling ever more closely to the cross? I heard somebody, and I shared this when I was at the hospital once, where somebody, and we gathered together a prayer, and this granddaughter said, well, if God doesn't heal my grandmother, I'm not going to believe in him anymore. And, you know, I didn't know what to say at that time. This was over 10 years ago, before Pure Life. Um, really, the question is, do you really believe in the first place? It's a, a fair-weather belief that God gives you away because her life wasn't anything surrendered to that. It wasn't really a belief. A lot of people I encountered, saw when I was working um, yesterday, talked about that she believes she's a Christian. And the term, she said, you know, she loves her pets. And I'm going, if you have a choice to save your pet or your neighbor, which will you choose in the midst of the fire? Which will you choose? And of course, she chose her pet. I go, that is not what Christ would have you do. Only the human being is made in the image of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you have to believe. Even though you love your pets, I'm not saying you can't love your pets, okay? But you really need to choose the, with the image of God over the pet. Okay? And that's what Christ would have you do. So the point that I'm saying with all that is when things are tough, when things are not going your way, that's when your faith is tested. Okay? And what else will the trial do? It'll show the strength of your faith. God gives us trial again and again to cultivate, to deepen our faith walk, to make us more and more trusting him. Just like that man, he went to Jesus when his son was writhing and seizing in the midst of it, and his, and his disciples couldn't heal him. He says, happened by faith. He goes, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Every day we struggle with a mixture of belief and unbelief. We have a choice of whether or not we want to believe more or unbelieve more. As we spend more time in the Word, as we spend more time in fellowship, like tonight when we're worshiping together and we're singing together, our faith increases. As we spend time immersing ourselves with things of God, our faith increases. As we spend time away from God and choosing and chasing after things of the world, our faith will dissipate. 
okay? And so the only way that it can't not dissipate is if you bring, engage the world through the strength of Christ, through the grace that he offers you. And if you use the Holy Spirit and you're walking in the Spirit, then the Spirit will empower you, okay, to encounter people. And you'll see that because what you'll see is that what we talked about last week is you're a pilgrim, we're a sojourner, we're here for a season or time, this is not our home. And that everybody that we encounter will be ministry. Right? There's fellowship. You can't have fellowship with the world. You can only have fellowship with Christ and those who have Christ within them. If you have fellowship with the world, it will corrupt you. I'm not saying you can't be civil. I'm not saying you can't be cordial. I'm not saying that you can't associate. But all the time, you're seeking what God wants. And you're seeking an opportunity for ministry to share the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so that faith, so like gold, and they use the analogy of gold again, because when that faith goes through a trial, it's like a fire. It burns away impurities. That's how they purify gold. They heat it up. It becomes liquid. And the impurities rise to the top and they scoop it away. Okay? And that's how you remove all those impurities from gold and you get 24 karat gold. Okay? And so the same thing with the faith. In the midst of that fire, in the midst of that trial, over and over again, our faith gets strengthened. And that's also where we rejoice. So we rejoice because we know in trial, God surges every son he receives and when he does that trial, he's not doing it because he doesn't like you. He does it because he loves you exceedingly. He loves you so much that he wants you to become more like Jesus. I like this from Warren Wearsby. God knew where Job was in the furnace. But it was a furnace of God's appointment, not because of God's, Jacob's sin. God would use Jacob, uh, Job's, not Job's sin. God would use Job's affliction to purify him and make him a better man. It's not the only answer to the question, why do the righteous suffer? But it is one of the best. And it can bring the sufferer great encouragement. Scripture often uses the image of a furnace to describe God's purifying ministry through suffering. In Isaiah 48.10, Deuteronomy 4.20, and Psalm 66.10. And here, in 1 Peter 6 and 7, and when we get to chapter 4, verse 12, of believers who go through persecution. When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. I love that analogy. So God's there knowing and adjusting with every trial, not letting you go, give you more than you can bear. We may question why he does it to begin with or why he doesn't turn down the heat or even turn it off. But our questions are the only evidences of unbelief. When we're questioning God, why am I going through this? I did. Unfortunately, sometimes I still do. Less, praise God. But when I'm questioning, that's rooted in unbelief. That's what he's saying there. Job 23.10 is the answer. He knows the way that I take when he, he has tested me. I will come forth as gold. Gold does not fear the fire. The furnace can only make the gold purer and brighter. 
Or when Lutzer reminds us that God often puts us in situations that are too much for us so that we will learn that no situation is too much for him. I'm starting to cherish trials because I know God loves me and I know God's going to work it out to good. And I know in the midst of the things I don't like and I'm frustrated with, God's dealing with things within me that I need still need to lay down and trust in him. And I know I need him. The more trials I go through, the more I realize, oh, why do I even think I can get by throughout the day without you? How do I think I can manage it on my own instead of seeking you? The famous Scott Robert Murray Machine said, for every one look at your problems, your weaknesses, your failures, take 10 looks at Jesus. So every time we have a trial, the opportunity is, Hey, let me turn to you, Jesus. I need help. You can say that. That's what prayer is, a conversation with God. God, I need help. I know I asked you already, and I'm asking you again. Just like the five-year-old kid who asks again and again, Daddy, Daddy, please help me. Or you see little kids, and they want Daddy to grab them in their arms. That's how we can be. We can be like little children before our Father. Because we kind of are. Aren't we? Okay. So let's move on to verse 10 to 12. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what? Or what matter of time? The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. So he starts out and he goes, the thing, and this is the, we have the advantage obviously of looking at the Old Testament that the Jews in the Old Testament didn't have. So when we hear, when we read the Old Testament, we get to see God's grace all throughout. Those of you who've done the mercy studies know that, you know, Hesed, and you go through that study, okay, with Rex Andrews that talks about that. But you see his mercy all throughout. But you also see how Christ was all throughout. Okay? And they talk about the term theophany when you see the image of Christ in Melchizedek. And you may have seen the fourth person that was in the fire and they think that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that may very well have been Christ. And you see these images of Christ over. And so all the prophets, even though they were prophesying for Israel, they were also prophesying about what Jesus would do. Okay, and now that we have the revelation, what God's given us with Jesus and what's happened in the New Testament, we can look at the Old Testament through that. But the prophets were talking about it at that time, even though they didn't fully comprehend it. They knew it was going to speak to something at that temporal moment to speak to Israel, but also to speak to now. That's how scripture works. It always works on multiple levels. Okay, that's why you can read the scripture, and I've shared this over and over. You can read it again and again, and then you realize second time around or third time around or the 50th time around that, oh, this suddenly makes a difference right here, right now in my life. Okay, that's how scripture is. Multiple levels with the same words. Pardon me? It is a living word. Well said. Okay, so part of that is and they talk about Jesus Christ was, was crucified before the foundation of the world. 
We talked about this last week again. God is timeless. We're not. He exists outside of time. Okay? So Jesus died before the earth was created. He died 2,000 years ago. He died now. He'll die and all that. So all of that's kind of now. Okay? And so when he came back, you see him persecuted. You'll see those same things in terms of what happened from God's perspective. Everything that's happened is now. And so he has a perspective of seeing you all as now. And that's hard because we're trying to grasp, you know, when people die, you know, do they sleep? Do they go to a soul sleep? Are they in heaven with Jesus right now? Is there a temporal time difference? And it's they're outside of time. Okay? And so it's not the same way. It's all now. And it's going to be hard. We're all going to meet at the point of now. It doesn't make sense to us because we li exist as linear beings and God is not. Okay? But the point being with that is that all of this will be revealed to you, okay? And the plan that they have. And so the angels are there, and, you know, they're with God, so they're outside of time, but they still don't understand. They don't have God's concept to understand. What is he doing here? What's happening here? Why is he using these beings who are clearly flawed, clearly screw up, and they're going to be in glory, and they're like God, and then they're going to know they're judging us and all that? That's kind of like... Hmm. Okay? And they don't have it. They don't understand it. They're trying to figure it out. They know God's good. At least the two-thirds who stuck around, okay? They know God's good. They know he's perfect in all his ways. But it's kind of like, oh, okay. Some will believe in faith. But some that they desire to see how the glory of God is being manifest. How it's revealing how it's going to play out. And so even though they're kind of outside time, part of it is seeing how it's going to play out at the same thing. Even though they kind of know the outcome because God has ordained that, it's still like, how is that going to work? So it says there at the beginning, right? They search carefully. And the Greek word here is eruneo. Okay? And so what that means is and I use the word, it's, it's kind of word, and it's how we're to be with Scripture, is diligently searching it out. And they use a good analogy of a, if you have a, a dog, okay, and that's searching out like a bloodhound, okay, and it's sniffing and sniffing and sniffing, and it's basically relentless, pursuing until it gets what it needs to get, okay, and searches out, and that's how we're to be, is that sense of passion, that doggedness, unintended, to to chase after the word of God. Okay? So an activity of examining, investigating, studying, studying to determine the meaning. Okay. Um, looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I talked to you about angels. So God's, everything God does is for his glory. Everything he does is for his glory, okay? And that's a good thing. If it's for his glory, we most benefit from that. It sounds like God's prideful. He needs to be glorified. He needs all his praise. No, it's not that. He's the lowliest of low, okay? That's why Jesus came. It sounds paradoxical, but it's not. 
He's the lowest of low, and by glorifying him, we are aligning ourselves to him. And when we do that, everything kind of goes in a groove. Everything flows. Okay? And so when we glorify him, and that's, and so this whole path that he's doing with us, the angels want to see that, and it's going to be showing, hey, what I'm doing, even though I've created this earth, all these things happened, everything that he's done, even the fall and everything, is going to give God even more glory. And I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. I believe in faith. But I want you to understand that. That everything God has orchestrated. Everything he's planned out. Angels don't have it figured out. We certainly don't have it figured out. Okay? And that's okay. That's where our faith comes in. The hope and the promise. So God is most glorified when we trust in him. When we don't see, right? Blessed are those, Jesus said, who believe had have not seen. More blessed. Because that faith, that trust in him gives him even more glory. So if you can actively choose to believe no matter what, actively choose to say, I will choose to believe even though I don't understand. Shucks, the angels don't even understand. And they're there. You'd think they would, but they don't. So how could I think I can? I may not, but I know God's good, and I'm going to believe in him. More than that, I'm going to go, yippee, rejoice exceedingly. I'm going to trust no matter what. I'm going to celebrate in the midst of my trials. I'm going to persevere because I know God's going to work it all to good, and he has the perfect plan even in the midst of our screw-ups he always has a perfect plan that's the thing we believe i screw up so bad i've gone against the plan of god no he can work it all out to good he can work a perfect plan in the midst of all our screw-ups if we choose to believe in him we have to love him and choose to believe in him obviously if we choose not and we don't have it then that's not within his plan we're not within the will of god that perfect plan is with us abiding in Christ. That perfect plan is if we act in faith and hope and trust and empowered by the grace of God. Empowered, that's where the grace, grace is the engine of our faith. It's God's grace that gives us faith. It's God's grace that redeemed us. It's God's grace that helps us walk in that. Okay, so moving on to 13 to 17. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conform yourself to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written... Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judge according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So, anytime you see the word therefore, okay, within 
the Bible. Pardon me? Exactly. What is there for? It's a conclusion, term of conclusion, right? So therefore, he's like, he's talking about all this stuff, and now, okay, this is now the reason why you need to do. Okay, so he's coming to a conclusion to tell you what. Okay, and so I love here what it says here from, um, he's actually a physician, um, and I've forgotten his name, Precept Austin is his website. He said he uses five Ps, pause, to ponder, the passage, then practice in the power of the Spirit. Okay, and he used the term, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, they wore tunics, right? And sometimes longer, long dress. And when I was in southern India, they'd have this where these dhotis, which is just kind of wrapping your way down here. And, you know, I don't know how these women walk with these pencil skirts or do these things, but you can barely move in those things. Okay? But anybody who was working there, they still wore those. And what they would do is they'd kind of roll it up and wrap it and basically have it just above their knees. And so the warriors, okay, and the Romans would either pull it up and tuck in their belt or they'd wrap it up if they didn't have a belt. And they basically, girding up your loins means pulling up and getting ready to fight. Okay, you're girding up your loins because you have to prepare yourself. And if you, we can use the same analogy from people like the police when they're getting ready or the SWAT team, you know, they're getting all their equipment ready and they're putting on their flak jackets and everything, right? They're wearing their um, bulletproof vests. And that would be the same analogy, okay? And there, so he says, gird up the loins of your mind. That means you need to prepare your mind for battle. You have to be sober. You can't prepare your minds and be frivolous. You have to be paying attention. You have to be alert. You have to be vigilant. Okay, anybody who's battle ready has to be prepared. You have to look, you have to look around. You have to be very much situationally aware. Okay, and what I notice with a lot of people, a lot of us within churches, we're not very situationally aware. That we don't really know what's happening around us. We don't know what's happening engaging with the people around us. We're so focused on our own thoughts and our own mind that we're not girded up. Okay, so those of us who spend so much time overthinking things and overanalyzing, we're not girding up our loins. We're not sober in our mind. If you believe God's good, and he's perfect in all his ways. And he promises, even though our love is imperfect, and we go, well, my only enemy, the accuser of the brethren will say, oh, you don't really love God because you did this. That's not how it works. You have to repent. You have to, okay? That's not what Christ says. Okay, it's not conditional. If somebody works, you're saved. It's not of yourself. Now, by your love and by your affection, you're going to want to love Jesus and act. And you ask him for help, and obviously not to walk in sin, because it says sin no more. And it says, be holy as I am holy. That shows of that love. So sinning is not God. Sin is why Jesus died. Sin no more. So sin is not something to be taken lightly or frivolously by any means. Okay? Sin is a reflection of where your heart is. Yes, to some extent that's true. That's why we have to repent, to realign our heart back with Jesus. Anytime you sin, and we will sin, repent, repent. Daily, repent. I'm sorry. God, I thought of myself. I was focused on me instead of you. Even if thoughts are good thoughts, if they're still focused on you, it's sin. It misses the mark. It's against what God is. It's not giving God the glory. If you're doing something that gives you glory and gives you praise, it's sin. So, 
The Greek word for that sober is nepho, which literally means free from drunkenness or the effects of intoxicants. So he says, be filled with the, do not be drunk with wine, but be, rather be filled with the Spirit. It's the same thing. Do not know that nepho, that term of being. And sometimes in our mind when we're overthinking things or overanalyzing, overassessing, we're in this kind of intoxication. We spend so much time thinking about our thoughts instead of trusting in the Word. In our anxieties and our worries and our fretting instead of the Word. And so we don't rest our hope fully on the grace of Christ. Okay? So it says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, what does it mean to rest your hope? Rest means peace. Rest means not anxious. Rest means not overthinking. Rest means compressing. Rest on hope. God's going to take you through no matter what trial. I can fret for nothing. Okay? And he tells it, do not conform to your pattern of your previous lusts. All of that's conditional. You see that whole thing ties together. So it's not one or the other. And you can't cherry pick this apart. It's all part of one. We're part of Christ. And the only way we can be part of Christ is not conforming to our firm of lust, putting off the old man and putting on the new, as it says in Ephesians. Becoming like Christ, being holy as he is holy. Okay, now, verses 18 to 21. Paul says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So, knowing that we were redeemed not with corruptible things. So even this, when we look at pure gold, and we talked about that, and now we're talking about it being silver and gold. And they're really talking about some of the coins, but all of this is going to perish. So everything that perish is by definition corruptible. The only thing that's not corruptible, really, is the Word of God, because that's the only thing that will last together, along with God Himself. Everything else is going to perish. Therefore, therefore, that's, that word corruptible basically can be, will be destroyed, will fall apart, will rust, will break down. Okay? And so we redeem not with something that will break down, not something that will be destroyed, not something that will fall away, but rather by the precious blood of Christ. And what is that blood like? What does that mean? So there's a story by Leslie Flynn. An orphan boy was living with his grandmother when their house caught fire. The grandmother, trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, perished in the flames. The boy's cries for help were finally answered by a man who climbed an iron drain pipe and came back down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. Several weeks later, a public hearing was held to determine who would receive custody of the child. A farmer? a teacher, 
And the town's wealthiest citizen all gave the reason they felt they should be chosen to give the boy a home. But as they talked, the lad's eyes remained focused on the floor. Then a stranger walked to the front and slowly took his hands from his pockets, revealing severe scars on them. As the crowd gasped, the boy cried out in recognition. This was the man who saved his life. His hands had been burned when he climbed the iron pipe. With a leap, the boy threw his arms around the man's neck and held on for dear life. The other men silently walked away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. Those marred hands had settled the issue. Do we remember each day what Jesus has done for us? What he meant for what he did when he got crucified for my sin, for our sin, past, present, and future. His scarred hands. We were rescued. We were going to be in the fire, destined for hell, ready to burn. And Jesus came for us, each one of us. Certainly not because we deserved it. We have to cry. And so each day we have the choice of crying out to him and saying, Abba, Father, Jesus, help me. And he's there. He's the one who rescued us, and he rescues us each and every day. Each and every day. He is that lamb without blemish, without spot. And so what I talked to before, there's another example of the blood, and I, this ministers more to me. Um, it's Holwick's illustration of a missionary hospital in Bore, India. It's kind of interesting. I wasn't a believer then when I went to medical school, but there is a Christian um, medical school in India, southern India, and my mom told me that my father was admitted to it. He was smart enough to go to it, but he refused to go because it was Christian. And I had the chance, and I wasn't a believer then, to go to spend a month down there. But Bore India, southern India, was there was a, they ministered to a lot of lepers, a leper colony. And there's a book by uh, Paul Brand with Philip Yancey called Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. And um, talked about leprosy, and Paul Brand was a pioneer in, um, in treating leprosy and how lepers, the reason why they lose their body parts is because they don't feel things of pain, okay? And so they don't feel pain, they don't know they have an injury, then they get infected because they don't know it's infected, and then it starts to grow tissue, and that's why they lose body parts. So leprosy doesn't actually cause the body parts to fall away. It doesn't cause the destruction itself. It just causes the deadening of the nerves, okay? But the point that I'm talking about this thing is this other illustration with... These two uh, physicians, surgeons, Reeve Betts and Paul Brown, encountered difficulty in trying to set up a blood bank. The Indian people themselves offer the biggest challenge. To them, blood is life. And who can tolerate the thought of giving up lifeblood even to save someone else? In one case, a 12-year-old girl had a very bad lung. Dr. Betts told the family it had to be removed if her life was going to be saved. The family members nodded with appropriate gravity. The surgery required three pints of blood minimum. And they had only one, so the family must donate two more. At the news, the family elders huddled together then announced a willingness to pay for the additional pints. Reeve Betts, Dr. Betts, flushed red at their response. The veins in his neck began to build, working to control his voice. He explained they had no other source of blood 
it could not be purchased. They might as well have taken the girl home and let her die. The family went back to conference. After more lively discussion, the elders emerged with a great concession. They pushed forward a frail old woman weighing perhaps 95 pounds, the smallest and weakest member of the extended family. The family decided to offer her as a transfusion donor, they reported. The doctors could lead her. Dr. Betts fixed a stare on the sleek, well-fed men who had made the decision, and then his anger took over. In halting but more than expressive Tamil, that's the language of Tamil Nadu, southern India, he blasted the dozen or so cowering family members, jabbing his finger back and forth from the husky men to the frail woman. Finally, with a melodramatic flourish, he rolled up his own sleeve and called over to Dr. Brand, Come on, Paul, I can't stand this. I won't let the poor girl die just because of these cowardly fellows. Bring the needle in the bottle and take my blood. The family fell silent and watched in awe as Brand dutifully fastened a cuff around Reeves' upper arm, swabbed the skin, and plunged the needle into his vein. A rich red fountain spurred into the bottle, and a great ah rustled through the family and spectators. At once, there was a great babble of voices. Look! The Sahib doctor is giving his own life. Onlookers called out shame on the family for allowing the great doctor to give himself in the presence of so many kin. The family got the message. Before the bottle was half full, two or three came forward and pulled out trembling outstretched arms. Their reputation spread. If the family refused blood, then the great doctor himself would be his own. And I like that because it just showed... I mean, he got, Paul Brown was a believer, so was Dr. Betts. He realized the need. And Jesus came to us because we had such a great need. And only his blood. There was no blood. It couldn't be purchased. There was no other way. Only his blood could set us free. And he gave it for us freely. And we sing the song, One Drop. It was his blood that did that. And it just showed that blood was ordained before the fall. So God knew all things. And that blood was ordained. That his blood, his sacrifice. And so if he knew that before time, you don't think he's got to figure out what's going to happen with you for the rest of your life? He's got it all figured out. It's all planned. That blood is sufficient for all of our sin. We can walk in faith and trust in the grace and the power through the blood of Christ. Okay. So let's go to the final three verses. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because, quoting from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 8, 6 to 8, all flesh is as grass 
and all the glory of man as the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So remember, we talked about Peter, right? He was a fisherman. Talks about in Acts. He wasn't educated. We don't know how much he knew about things. And he's now quoting from Isaiah and talking about the permanence of God. So whether he studied at that time or this is through the revelation of God, I don't know. Okay? And the word here they use about that in terms of where they use both the word logos at the beginning and rima. And they're different words. And logos would be the term that we would use for the overarching word. Okay, so when we talk about logos, we're talking about um, universal, eternal reason or principle. Okay, rima would refer to something that speaks to us more in an individual level, personal word, word or utterance. It's not, the, the lines aren't completely sharp between them. Okay, so there's a little bit of blurring with that. But their principle being is that word affects everything in creation and affects each one of us individually. The word of God was meant for all of humanity and for you and for me. And that word will endure forever. All the things that we do, all that flesh, that sarks is a Greek word, S-A-R-X, carn, where we get the word also carne, carnal from, that will all pass away. Everything we do, everything that we plan, every building we create, every work we've done, even this, will all pass away. And we've worked hard sometimes. You know, when you do something, you build something, you feel good. Ah, I feel good. It's going to pass away. It's all going to burn out. Nothing is going to stick around. All of our retirement plans, everything that we have, and everything we plan for the future, what we're going to do is all going to burn away. Even Pastor Jeff's motorcycle. <laughs> maybe sooner than later but that'd be better just kidding uh, but all those things will pass away but the word of God is what endures forever so if the word of God is forever it's the thing I talked before it's the part that's super real even more real than our current reality if we can grasp that if we can trust that and take a hold of that then we have absolutely nothing to fear about it's super real it's more real than looking at each other. It's more permanent, more lasting, has more value, has more substance. When I talk about real, I'm talking about substance than anything else around us. And to show you how good that word is, in 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian demanded that every copy of the scriptures in the Roman Empire be burned. He failed. 25 years later, the Roman Emperor Constantine commissioned a scholar named Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible at the government's expense. And another case here. So, a skeptic once told Gaylord Kamarami, the general secretary of the Bible, Society of Zimbabwe. If you give me that New Testament, I will roll the pages and use them to make cigarettes. Gaylord replied, I understand that, but at least promise to read the page of the New Testament before you smoke it. 
when the man agreed, there he gave him the New Testament, and that was the last he saw of him for 15 years. Then, while Gaylord was attending a Methodist convention in Zimbabwe, the speaker on the platform suddenly spotted him, poured him out to the audience, and said, that man doesn't remember me, but 15 years ago, he tried to sell me a New Testament. When I refused to buy it, he gave it to me, even though I told him I would use the pages to roll cigarettes. I smoked Matthew, I smoked Mark, and I smoked Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. That man is now a full-time evangelist preaching the word he once smoked. God uses the word to bring new life. And they talked about that. You know, Corey Ten Boom talked about how they precious the Bible was that they had within the, in, in, in the concentration camp. And they had bed bugs. And they were grateful for the bugs they had because the prison guards wouldn't go near them. You know, if we have mice, bugs, all that, we're not very grateful for that. But other people around it. And there's other ones where, you know, one, uh, I can't remember where I've heard this one. In, this is in uh, the Japanese prison camp in World War II where the, the Japanese general would use the Bible <coughs> as toilet paper. And he commissioned the guy to clean the latrine. And so he would basically take the scripture that was used as toilet paper, clean it off, and have the word of God. That's how precious he is when somebody else did it. And it's crazy, but it shows how precious and do we treat it with that same sense of esteem and reverence. So, um, finishing with that part, he talks about, okay, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Fervently. Remember we talked before about exceedingly joy, exceeding joy, fervent. They're talking about passion, intent, not passive. It's an active, it's full engagement. And that love, you just can't sit and people. You have to be actually seeking out to love. And so we talked before about the faith. We talked some about the hope that we have. And now we're talking about love. And everywhere you see in the New Testament, it talks about those three. Paul repeatedly Right? James talked about it, but even more so now. Also, Peter's talking about the love that we have. That love needs to be sincere, it needs to be passionate, and it's the love for one another. One of the things I appreciate here that we get to see is when we're worshiping together, there is a spirit of unity. When two or three are gathered, I'm here. When we can harness, when we can appreciate that our walk is not in isolation. My walk with Jesus is not just my own. American Christianity, we think it's individualistic, but that is not how it's been through history, nor how it is in most of the world. It is, a corp it is the individual, yes, if there's my own, it's my responsibility, but it's also corporate. And that only shows up in loving one another. Loving one another in a way that the world's unable to do so. Every word, when we use the word hope, and in the Bible, when you use the word hope, it's not the same where the secularists use. When they use the word faith, it doesn't have the same meaning. One of the challenges I have is in our society, in our culture, everything is done in a way that everybody uses exaggeration, hyperbole, all the time. How bad is the pain? The pain is killing me. Well, you're not dying from the pain. It's hyperbole. 
How do you feel? I'm starving. Kids, I'm starving. You're not starving. You just insulted a billion people on the planet by saying that. We don't think of it that way because we're selfish. But when we say that, we're, we're basically disregarding with people who are actually starving, living less than a dollar twenty-five a day. Okay? I've heard somebody else, how bad is the pain? They say, it's excruciating. Do you all know what the word excruciating means? Pain of the cross. Correct. So every time we're saying it, it says, I'm just going through what Jesus went through. Yeah. That pain is what Jesus went through. Right there. I'm going, yeah. We just belittled. So we use these words automatically as an exaggeration. That pain, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is the pain? 100? Yeah, I don't know how that figures on a 10-point scale. But <laughs> the point being is everybody says like their experience is like the worst imaginable. Everybody, because the focus is naturally self-focused. And we belittle things that are meaningful. Okay? And so the problem is we use these words and we use them so much that it, you, you, everybody's on the extreme edge. Nothing's average. Nobody's average. Nobody's an average student. Nobody's an average in their faith. Everybody wants to be a superhero for Jesus if they're a Christian or a superhero for somewhere else. Kids want to be Hulk or Iron Man or Superman and all these things because they think they're super great. And they're told that. you got all these goals. So everybody's great. So if everybody's great, then who's average? We've lost that. And so we have to be careful and on guard with how we speak. And it belittles things because it doesn't have the same meaning because everything is over the top. And it's the challenge of the world with our media. That's why we can't watch movies of 60 years ago because we don't have the patience to watch that anymore. It's boring. Everything has to change every five seconds because we need to be super stimulated. And that's getting faster and faster and is talking about that and I bring that up to let you know that as we immerse ourselves in the world we lose sight of how things work in eternity our mind gets corrupted and polluted by that in its language in its value system in everything that we perceive okay just read a study about kids who watch more, more than two hours of computer time or laptop or electronics a day that their attention focus gets stroked. They get more ADHD and more oppositional defiant disorder. Which basically means they become rebellious. So all our electronics don't make us more obedient to Christ. For the kids, they probably make us more rebellious. So something to be mindful for. I bring all that to point to going where our value is. So the word is spending time in the word. Okay, I'm not saying don't have your tablets, don't have your electronics to read things, but spend time in quiet, sometimes just seeking the Lord. And it's okay, use a written word. Or oral, listen to an audio version of it. Or read it out loud to yourself. And spend time with the Lord and tune out the world. And that word is what's going to help us. Okay, so any questions? We only have a few more minutes. Stephen?
well, they're in heaven, they get to see. They don't have faith because they see things. So, they're, you know, we are, we're each judged based on the amount of revelation that we have and what we see. Except their rebels already knew. They already got to see everything. They got to see the incomplete glory of God. And we don't. Go ahead, Troy. Again, the thing that I've said before, what humans offer that God treasures that angels cannot have is faith. Angels have no faith, okay, because they see, okay? We don't see. We believe when we cannot see. It says that also here in Peter about you who have not seen that you believe. And so that faith, and then in the midst of trouble, when things don't work out and we choose to accept, even our eyes so when we are trialed, we're basically saying, I'm not going to choose what I see in front of me. Instead, I'm going to put my eyes on Jesus and God and what the Word says to me, even though my eyes tell me something different. I'm going to believe that instead of what my eyes see, what my realities, what my senses are. For those who are materialistic, you see my five senses determine that. I'm not, going to, I'm not saying that doesn't exist but I'm going to choose to believe even though that's not what it sees. It shows up in health. I'm going to choose to believe that things are going to work out. We're believing for Sister Rose for the testimony, even though I can quote things in terms of percentages and statistics, what materialistic, what's going to happen. Okay? And so, I, I got you, Frank, and we'll do it. Okay? And so, I, um, and so that faith that we believe in the midst when our world doesn't conform that, and we choose, like Peter to walk out when we should sink. But if you call me, I'll walk to you. Okay? That's the faith you're talking about. And so in this trial, you should sink. But by faith, you decide to follow Jesus. And God is so proud of us to do that because that's what he wants. Because that's like him. Does that help to answer that? Go ahead. Well, part of that trial is, like I said, purifying us and making us more, better vessels. So that does look correct. And as we become more, we become more useful for his kingdom, we, God is more glorified in us. Go ahead. Yes.
As we become purified, we become more like Christ, the revelation of Christ that's within us and when we get to see him. And you get to see him within us. And I've said this before, the more we're like Christ, go ahead, Pastor, you can say something. Just and we and it magnifies it because we have the fellowship of the suffering with Christ. We become more like Christ in the midst of that because we're exemplified. He's the perfect Adam, the perfect example before us, and more like Him. And as we become more like Him, it actually brings more glory. It's kind of weird to see how that is, but we, as, as I've said before, the more we're like Jesus more joy we'll have in heaven. I don't know how that works exactly that number, but that's what will happen. Okay, guys, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing on each man. Father, I just pray that you have your way, Lord, and Father, this week that we trust and abide in your word, keeping our eyes fixed on you. May we be as Peter was when he stepped out in the boat, that boldness of trusting you no matter what, not worried about the waves, Lord, no matter what, Lord. So, Father, keep our focus on you. Help us to be holy as you're holy, Lord, seeking in each moment of repenting quickly of our sin, putting off the old man and putting on the new. May you get all the glory you deserve, every bit of it in our lives. In Jesus' name.